Welcome to Your Truth Revealed, a video podcast that explores your hidden physical and mental health potential. I'm Eric Marcoux, and I share with you the power of self-knowledge. I interview industry professionals to talk about how you can be your own health expert. You're listening to episode 18, Know Your Drugs. This is the second part of an interview with psychiatrist Dr. Brent Turnipseed. And this is the last interview of season one. Season two will start again in September. You can stay connected all year round by following me on Instagram at Erica Marcou. Brent Turnipseed has been featured on Behind the Scenes with Lawrence Fishburne on public television. He received his medical degree in psychiatry from the University of Texas. He and his wife then started a clinic, Roots Behavioral Health, that uses an integrative model. And here people receive help with their mental health from practitioners who collaborate with various therapies. MDMA. This is another breakthrough uh, in treating post-traumatic stress disorder, which is PTSD. This is also commonly known as ecstasy or molly. MDMA may represent the first pharmacologic cure in psychiatry, which is huge Wow! to say that. The Me- cure for PTSD. It could cure PTSD. Listen as we explore supplements and prescription drugs to balance your physical and mental health. And ketamine significantly improves treatment-resistant depression. And going back to what you originally talked about at the beginning of the interview, I could imagine as a practitioner, when you're treating people with depression and not seeing them get better, that this is this is a big deal for you to be able to provide this kind of treatment for patients. It is a big deal. And, and I, I think it kind of speaks to what kind of provider, what kind of physician or healthcare professional you want to be. And right. I kind of had a moment when I was reading all the news about ketamine. And then it was last February, I went to this fundraiser and it just it's just like a spark hit me. Mm-hmm. And I realized, okay, this is the moment where I'm going to make this decision about changing my career. And I decided to go through with it and teach myself everything I could about ketamine, go to trainings and start doing it. And, and the contrast is, I'm not saying I'm a better uh, physician or a better psychiatrist than my colleagues, but, but in medicine, it's very difficult to make changes. Mm-hmm. You've been trained a certain way for so long, and even though we all engage in continuing medical education, physicians as a group are relatively conservative, and right. they don't change their practice radically very much. Right. And ketamine is a radical departure from the way we're trained. For example, to administer ketamine, you actually have to put your hands on a patient besides just shaking hands. Like we give them intramuscular injections in their arm. Giving injections is so outside our treatment paradigm. So it really shakes up the whole treatment paradigm of psychiatry. Right, right. (laughs) And most people don't know that. I'm trying to clarify this through the podcast, but oftentimes people get doctors, psychiatrists, even therapists or psychologists all confused. So for you in your profession, it's very rare that you would have your hands on an actual patient. It helps the the listeners to understand what your role typically has been. So this is stepping out of that conformity. It's true. And I mean, when people do ketamine psychotherapy, which is a whole other thing we could talk about later if you want, 
people come in our space, they sit in a recliner, they have a cozy blanket, they have an eye shade because they listen to calming meditative music. Mm -hmm. They sit with me and the therapist who guides them through, we'd call it the journey, through the therapy mm -hmm. experience for two hours. It's and a two hour long session? It's a two hour session. Okay. The first hour is mainly experiencing the effects of ketamine and it alters consciousness. And the second hour, um, the person pretty much comes back to, I mean, they're a little foggy, they're a little sedated, but they can have a lucid conversation. And in that second hour, that's that's where a lot of the most important work occurs. We, we process, you know, what just happened? Uh, what happened to your mind? What happened to your thoughts? Did you see anything? Uh, and almost always really important things come up for the person. I'd like to slow down the whole process of having a ketamine session. Can we even start with how, do, how does a patient decide that ketamine might be right for them? It's becoming more common that people realize it's a treatment available primarily for depression. Mm -hmm. And I think if people have been really depressed and struggling for a long time or tried various standard treatments and it hasn't worked, you know, people get desperate and they start doing their own research, their own reading, and, and they're, they're eager just to find a solution. And so we get a lot of people who are just looking to feel better and they've, you know, tried many treatments or therapies. And so they come to us for an evaluation to determine if they're uh, an appropriate, suitable candidate for ketamine or not. Okay. And so let's say that a patient is a good candidate for it. How does that session even begin for that patient? <laughs> We started doing ketamine psychotherapy at our at our clinic in summer of 2018. So I think okay. we started in July, and we were learning and doing something new. Uh, my wife and I had actually gone to the Bay Area mm -hmm. and gotten an official certification from Phil Wolfson. Phil Wolfson is uh, kind of one of the founders of ketamine psychotherapy. He created ketamine assisted psychotherapy KAP. Okay. And he his training offers the certification, and now we're uh, we're a member of his affiliates program. And actually, we've uh, been named as regional trainers for KAP, and we're going to be holding a training here in Austin, actually offering certification. Despite our training, there's still a, a steep learning curve, right? And so when we started, despite our best intentions, you know, some sessions weren't going very well. Mm -hmm. Patients were getting anxious. Oh, Patients okay. were feeling like, like they're going to have a panic attack because the ketamine is somewhat psychologically intense. So we kind of went back to the drawing board, consulted with Phil Wolfson and colleagues and tried to figure out, okay, we're not harming people, but we're not helping them in the way we, mm -hmm. we hope to. Mm -hmm. So what are we not doing right? Mm -hmm. And we realized we needed to pay more attention to these two important concepts in psychedelic psychotherapy, which is called set and setting. Set refers to the mindset of the person having the experience, getting the treatment, and setting is the environment in which you have the treatment or take the substance. I think our error that we learned from is we weren't spending enough time preparing people for the experience. Mm -hmm. And so we slowed it down. Excellent. And so the two slow down steps where one was on the medical side and one was on the therapy side. On the medical side, we told patients, we insisted that after they are evaluated and if we determine that they are a good candidate, mm -hmm. then their next appointment before they receive ketamine mm -hmm. is they need to spend about half an hour with a medical provider going over a 10-page informed consent document, which I wrote, basically okay. teaching the patient everything they need to know about ketamine so they're informed and educated 
And there's no surprises. And so there's no surprises during the session itself when they start to experience, I'm assuming, certain symptoms or the effects of ketamine, that they're more mentally prepared for that. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. And, and imagine if you're caught by surprise, by it's a strange scary. feeling, it can, it, can be, it can be frightening. And, and so that helped uh, learning, educating them. And the other preparation step was, you know, they're going to also be working with a therapist who's going to guide them through the experience. Mm-hmm. So we recommended that they spend at least one, if not two, prep sessions Excellent. with the therapist to build rapport, talk about uh-huh. goals, talk about why are we doing this in the first place, what do you mm-hmm. hope to get out of this. And that also made a huge improvement right. in the outcomes. And patients said they had better experiences. So mm-hmm. we had almost no one getting anxious or feeling like they're going to have a panic attack. Um, Another common side effect of ketamine is nausea. People were a lot less nauseous just from kind of being aware of the experience and being mentally prepared for it. Right. When I lead my clients through meditation, we always set an intention. So that's similar, I think, to set and setting. It's it's what what is the intention around what you want to get out of this experience? What's the outcome? That's right. And so even though this is, you know, modern psychiatric techniques, modern therapy techniques, modern medicine, a lot of the foundation of our training and a lot of the foundation that the therapists receive in our training actually borrows from Eastern practices, meditation practices, Mm -hmm. shamanic practices. Mm -hmm. And again, we're talking about doing something different in psychiatry, changing the paradigm most of my colleagues, you know, they don't know anything about shamanic practices, and I don't either. And people might even laugh at the notion that we do this or not take it seriously. MDMA. This is another breakthrough uh, in treating post-traumatic stress disorder, which is PTSD. This is also commonly known as ecstasy or molly. Please tell me more about it. So MDMA, it was synthesized close to 100 years ago. It sat shelves by a pharmaceutical company for decades. It was revived in the 1970s and 1980s and used as something which was an adjunct to psychotherapy, Mm kind of like we're doing with ketamine. It was made illegal in 1986. And in 1986, that was the same year that uh, Rick Doblin formed MAPS. MAPS stands for Multidisciplinary Association uh, for Psychedelic Studies. Okay. Never heard of that before. (laughs) MAPS is a very well-funded organization whose goal has been to help legalize MDMA for psychotherapeutic purposes. And And they've already conducted some studies, some phase one and phase two trials in the last few years for uh, PTSD and trauma, Mm -hmm. they had very positive results. And their results were so positive, the Lancet, uh, British medical publication, Mm -hmm. the uh, Lancet Psychiatry uh, came out with an editorial last spring that said, MDMA may represent the first pharmacologic cure in psychiatry, which is huge to say that. The Me- cure for PTSD. It could cure PTSD. They they took the people that did their study, maybe 20-something um, people, and they interviewed them something about 8 to 10 months later after the trial concluded, somewhere on the order of about 70% of them no longer met criteria for PTSD. And would there's been no medication or treatment out there that has that high of a success rate, is there? 
PTSD is notoriously chronic, notoriously treatment resistant. I might even say as a clinician, it's more difficult to treat than Mm -hmm. depression Mm -hmm. because part of the treatment is um, being able to relate to your clients and plenty of people with trauma and PTSD feel fearful and distrustful because they've been harmed in the past and it's really difficult to make a connection with them and if you can't make a good connection then you have no good foundation for making your treatment work in the first place. MDMA is not a psychedelic in the sense like LSD. It doesn't cause profound colors or alterations in your perceived reality. Mm-hmm. What MDMA does is cause empathy and connection. Really? Yes. So people sitting together taking MDMA are going to feel very connected, very close, very trusting. Huh. And so for someone who's been living in fear, paranoia, um, afraid of being harmed, those walls melt and they're able to trust. I mean, not instantly. It takes mm-hmm. it takes therapy and several weeks of treatment, but they are able to work through that trauma, make it something of the past and kind of engage back in the present moment of their lives so that the previous trauma is not affecting them right. in current day. How does MDMA affect the brain, especially increasing trust and empathy? That's astonishing. Neuroscience is not my... My my major specialty in my background, Mm -hmm. so I can tell you what I know. There's probably a couple details I'm missing. What we do know is if a person takes MDMA, there's a massive flood and release of serotonin. Mm -hmm. So that happens. So serotonin is probably involved in the connection. However, the other chemical that's implicated is oxytocin. Oh, okay. And so oxytocin is what our brain stimulates when we fall in love. Oxytocin is what we feel when we feel bonded and connected to people. I mean, I have two young kids. When you have your baby and they mm. bring the baby to you, uh, and I mean, I kind of remember this, mm-hmm. um, and my wife does too, you, you, you feel this strong feeling that's just kind of indescribable, but this connection you have with your child, right? Mm-hmm. That's oxytocin. So MDMA triggers release of lots of oxytocin too. So it's probably some beautiful combination of serotonin and oxytocin that helps people feel this empathy and connection with others. Is that why they call it ecstasy? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Probably. There, there's a misunderstanding about MDMA that MDMA is, you know, aphrodisiac. MDMA is all about um, sexuality. And I'm sure some people have found use for that, but it's primarily a connection that's non-sexual for, for most people. It's a therapy which just helps bring people together. And empathy is the key word, not, not sexuality. Right. And that that empathy... I could assume for that person that who has PTSD that that helps them, like you were saying, to bond, to be able to trust the practitioner and to be able to heal whatever that original trauma was. So while they're taking the drug, are they also revisiting that trauma or is it just a letting go process or both? I haven't done the official training. Our clinic is going to be doing the work later on this year. The training that I got was actually in the Bay Area. That's where I got my master's degree, and it was specifically in somatic counseling psychology. A lot of that was about treating people with trauma. It's such a difficult experience trying to connect just verbally. We would actually take the clients into their physical experience of it and help them to release the physical trauma that's actually stuck in the body. That's a huge part of somatic work. Interestingly, uh, kind of coming back to ketamine for a minute, when we did our ketamine training, 
one of the books that was required reading was this book called The Body Keeps the Score ah. by Bessel van der Kolk. Uh-huh. And he's, I know him. he's a psychiatrist, expert on PTSD and trauma. Right. Yes. And so the basic idea is if a person has been, let's say, physically assaulted, and that was mm-hmm. their trauma, the idea is that if you've been physically wounded, your body remembers that trauma. Right. And certain things later in life, you know, being touched the wrong way, mm-hmm. hearing a certain sound, can re-trigger that trauma in the part of the body that was hurt or assaulted in the past. That's right. And through that somatic experiencing, that's another type of therapy, you can help to, to release that. Michael Pollan wrote a book, How to Change Your Mind, and what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. And he also has an excellent interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air about this book. So if anybody's interested. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm glad he brought that book out because Mm -hmm. I think it's made the conversation about psychedelics less taboo and more mainstream. More mainstream in the sense of trying to find out, are are there real valid medical benefits to Mm -hmm. these treatments? Maybe it's no surprise to people who've been doing these practices for um, a long time and um, indigenous peoples all over the world have done similar shamanic practices for right, thousands of years. So there's some wisdom in these practices right. that we're trying to incorporate into modern modern medicine. And, you know, we may not get it right, but we're at least trying to learn from the wisdom of some of these ancients in our, in our work. Mm-hmm. There's a cautionary part of me that's kind of coming up. I guess the mother and me Wanting to differentiate, you know, the use of psychedelics as a street drug or recreationally versus what you're talking about in this podcast. Can you describe the differences? When we talk about psychedelics, what comes to mind for me is the whole idea of legalization or decriminalization. Mm -hmm. And if you legalize substances that may have a medical benefit, uh, like mushrooms that may happen in the next few years, like MDMA, if there's legalization, there's also safety requirements and standardization requirements. So if we talk about MDMA for a second, which is ecstasy, that might be a legal substance medication we can work with in the future. Well, depending on the study you read, um, there's been studies looking at street samples of MDMA mm-hmm. and what actually is contained in them. And I think it's something like greater than 90% of MDMA is adulterated with some other substance, usually cocaine amphetamine, actually sometimes ketamine. And that's part of the danger of illegal drugs or drugs that are made illegal is then there's a black market, there's an underground culture, and there's no standardization and there's 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 more harm. Right. There's, there's more crime and there's more harm. There's more danger. There's more danger. And so that helps support the argument, not broad legalization, but mm-hmm. safe, responsible legalization and FDA approval for you know, the substances that do have valid or proven medical benefit. Mm -hmm. Between now and the next month from now, the FDA is about to make an announcement whether or not they're going to legalize MDMA. I mean, this is coming any day now. The assumption is that they're going to legalize it. We hope that's true. If they do, for a about a two-year provisional period, they're going to grant something called expanded access. Expanded access means the FDA will allow a select number of clinics in the United States uh, to offer the treatment 
until it can be widely adopted um, about two years from now. It's looking like we may be one of nine or ten sites in the country that's going to offer the treatment later this year. That's excellent. So we're excited about it. I bet. We're very excited about it. too. It's historic. It is historic. And using these treatments that have been available, but we don't always know how to use them in the best way until we kind of go out on a limb, practitioners like you, to see how they actually work in a different context. And I think that's how we make progress. Otherwise, we just kind of have a stalemate. I'm going to go back again to the original premise that we talked about in the podcast about you wanting to help as many people as you can. And really, I feel that that's where you're wanting to put your effort, that just maintaining a status quo is not where you want to be. That's right, because I wasn't satisfied. I, I felt wouldn't like, be either. I felt like we weren't reaching enough people, or we were reaching plenty of people, but there was a lot of people we weren't reaching that would just go off and leave, never come back, see another provider, and probably still not get their questions or their problems solved. Right. So I, I think uh, rebelling against the status quo is good. Challenging the mm-hmm. paradigm is good because it forces you to think outside the box, think of new ways to approach problems and try to help people. Right. Thank you so much for joining us, and this has been very informative and awesome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Want to improve your energy and sleep? Our featured product is Ashwagandha by Life Extension. This Indian herb helps alleviate tension and stress. Ashwagandha inhibits the stress hormone cortisol up to 26%. It supports brain and nervous system function to improve energy, sleep, and overall well-being. Go to your truthrevealed.com slash store and use promo code TRUTH for a 20% discount. Welcome to the bonus segment of my video podcast, Your Truth Revealed. Mental and physical health are completely interconnected. The first director of the World Health Organization was a psychiatrist, Dr. Brock Chisholm. I'm pleasantly surprised that he said, without mental health, there can be no true physical health. And do you know that the World Health Organization's first constitution written in 1946 says, health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Psychiatrists are the link between mental and physical health, but many people wonder if they should even consider seeing a psychiatrist. I want to further explore how mental and physical health are connected. I talk about the mind-body connection in the interview, Know Your Counselor. There is strong evidence over recent decades that challenges the historical belief that the mind and body are separate. The nature of this relationship is actually two-way, and your mental health influences your physical health and vice versa. Here's an example. Up to 50% of cancer patients suffer from a mental illness, especially depression and anxiety. And a study showed that 80% of cancer patients with anxiety and depression responded positively to psychedelic treatment. This study was published in 2016 by the Journal of Psychopharmacology, and one of the biggest breakthroughs in treating severe depression is ketamine. Ketamine was used as an anesthesia in the 1960s during the Vietnam War. 
Studies show that it is a rapid-acting and effective antidepressant. And the most important point here is that people who experience mental and or physical illness can recover when they ask for help. One in five adults in the U.S. experienced mental illness in 2018, and only 43% of those adults received treatment. I join others in helping to protect and improve mental and physical health, focusing on wellness to prevent illness rather than waiting to treat illness after the fact. Let's continue to work together to openly talk about mental health. This helps all of us feel good. I'm seeing new clients and I'm offering a free consultation online. If you would like to schedule a one-on-one meeting with me, simply go to my website, yourtruthrevealed.com slash sessions. And remember, season two will start again in September. We'll explore farming, yoga, biochemistry, adoption, and more. If you want a reminder about season two, sign up for my newsletter at yourtruthrevealed.com. You can stay connected all year round by following me on Instagram at Erica Marku. There are also great resources in the show notes. I'm Erica Marku. Thanks for listening.